We are up to the second chapter of Pirkei Avos. We're going to do today Mishnah number two and Mishnah number three, both authored by Rabban Gamliel, the son of Rabbi Huda Hanasi, Rabbi Judah the Prince. So we're going to read these two Mishnahs, and then we're going to go through them bit by bit after a little bit of a historical biographical note on this third Rabbi Gamliel that we meet. Rabbi Gamliel ben Anasi Omer. Last Mishnah, the previous Mishnah was Rabbi Judah the Prince, alternative called just Rabbi. When he passed away, he gathered his sons together and he nominated his eldest son, Rabbi Gamliel, as the new Nasi. And his other son, Rabbi Shimon, became what's called the Chacham. And then a third rabbi became the, the, the president of the Sanhedrin. And what actually happened uh, is that the leadership structure changed. Previously, it was just Rabbi Drew the Prince was everything. And after he passed, he spread, it, he spread out the leadership responsibilities amongst two of his sons and a third sage. What did this great Rabbi Gamliel tell us? It is admirable, it is beautiful to have the study of Torah together with an occupation, to have a blend of Torah and some other craft or way of making a livelihood. Why? Because the exertion in both of them will make a person forget sin. That's the first clause of the Mishnah. V'chol Torah and every Torah study that does not have with it labor, sofa betela, in the end it will be nullified, it will cease. V'goreres avon, and will bring in its weight sin. And finally, v'chol ostim imatsibur yihiyu, ostim yuman l'shem shemaim. All those who are involved with the community, with the public, should involve themselves for the sake of heaven. Shezchus avosam misayasam. Because the Merit of the forefathers aid them, and the righteousness endures forever. And nevertheless, as for you, God will bestow upon you great reward, as if you did it on your own. So that's the second Mishnah. And I want to quickly read the third Mishnah, which is again a continuation of this great Rabbi Gamliel. Be very careful and cautious of the rulers, of the politicians, of the kings, because they don't befriend a person unless it's for their own benefit. They're in it for themselves. They appear like friends at the time when it benefits them. But they won't stand by a person in his time of need. So these are the two Teachings of Rabban Gamliel, Mishnah 2, Mishnah 3, and he also has Mishnah 4, but we'll leave that for next time. Now, there's a, an amazing description of Rabbi Judah the Prince on his deathbed in the Talmud in the Book of Tsubos on page 103 and 104. And he, he gives a whole, he gathers in his children and gives a whole list of directives to them. And it's interesting that like we said, he appoints his eldest son, Ramliel, to be a successor as Nasi, which is the highest office. But then the next son, or one of the subsequent sons, is Rabban Shimon, and he appoints him as the Chacham, as the wise man, as the elder, but not quite the Nasi. And it's interesting that even though Rabban Shimon was a, more, a greater Torah scholar, 
and therefore maybe he should have been the true candidate to be the successor as Nasi. But because Rabbi Gamaliel was the eldest and he was equal to his father in his fear of sin, says the Talmud, therefore he is a worthy candidate to replace his father. And it, I guess it's not a coincidence that in his teaching in the Mishnah, he tells us that by marrying Torah study together with an occupation, you build to evade sin. Clearly, what's forefront on his mind is how to avoid sin. And that seems to fit in nicely with the characterization that his father gives about him, that he was someone who was fearful of sin, he was very careful not to sin, and therefore it is appropriate for him to be one of the model leaders, even though he's not the greatest Torah scholar in the family, because he's the oldest and he is has fear of sin, he's a uh, worthy replacement. And this is something that we see in um, in Judaism, that if the father has a certain stature, the halacha and what's proper to do is that the oldest son, or certainly one of the sons, should replace them. So if the father is the rabbi of the city and the son is worthy, even though there may be a worthier candidate, the son gets that position. And that's a, a thing that's universal, even with regards to the king. If there's a king and they die and then they have a replacement, an adequate uh, son who could fill their shoes, even though there may be better candidates, it doesn't matter. It goes her- hereditorily. It goes in the family. Moshe, in the book of Numbers, he says to God, I want to find a replacement. And God tell, and, and the commentators explained that what Moshe actually wanted was to have his sons replace him. Now, obviously, Moshe believed that they were adequate candidates, yet God tells him, no, you have to select Joshua for a whole host of reasons why Joshua was selected. Uh, because Joshua never departed your side. He was the complete apprentice to Moshe. Alternatively, we're told that Joshua was always the first first man in, last man out in the study hall. And in addition, he was someone who would arrange the benches. He was schlepping the tables and moving the chairs to make sure that uh, there's the seating is set up for the scholars, which shows that he doesn't have this stature like, oh, this is beneath me. I'm not going to be, I'm not the custodian here. Find someone else to schlep the chairs. Joshua is willing to say whatever job there is needed, I'm willing to do, and therefore that shows a certain leadership quality. Uh, but Moshe wanted his sons and wasn't granted that. But typically, and this is indeed entrenched in halacha, typically when there is a um, a good candidate that's also the son of the previous individual, they have first dibs, and, and that's what's proper to do. There's an amazing story uh, about one of the rabbis who headed the yeshiva in uh, in the Mir Yeshiva in, in, in Brooklyn. There's, so there's two Mir Yeshivas. There's a Mir Yeshiva in Israel and there's a Mir Yeshiva in Brooklyn. And there was a um, one of the – so there was a head of the Yeshiva and then they had – he had hired a bunch of Torah scholars to be the lecturers. So one of them, his name was Rabbi Shmuel Brudny. And he was a great lecturer and a great Torah scholar. But he was a hired hand. And he decided to take a different position to become the Rosh Hashiva of a smaller institution. And he was to take that job and leave his post at one of the great yeshivas in America, the Mir Yeshiva. And the Rosh Hashiva of the Mir Yeshiva says to him, calls him into his office and says, I don't get it. You have an opportunity here to be in the great Mir Yeshiva. You know, go take some other 
position in some smaller no-name location, why would you want to do that? So he says to them, you know, you're right. Uh, for me, I'd rather be here. But what's going to be after I die? If I'm here, I'm a hired hand. There's no way I could guarantee a slot for my son to take over my position. But there, if I become the head of the yeshiva and it becomes my place, then I, I'm guaranteed that I can hand it over to my son. So the Rosh Hashiva and the Mir tells him, you know what? We'll make a deal. You stay here, but we guarantee you when you die, your son takes over your position. So he agreed. And they signed off on the, on the, on the deal. Rabbi Brudny is going to stay in the Mir. And when he passes, after 120 years, his son will take over. The problem is he didn't live to 120. He died very young. Soon after this, this, this uh, episode, he passed away. And his son is like 22 years old, 27 years old, young kid. And to take over this great vaunted position, it's a problem. So right after they died, right after he passed away, they were trying to figure out what to do. What, what do we do now? Because we made a deal, but no one, no one expected him to die so soon. And his son is so young. So the Rosh Hashiva said that, you know what we're going to do? We're not going to immediately give the son the position. Let him, let him, you know, age a few years. And then when he's 35, something like that, he to take over his father's position. That's what he said. And then someone, there was a, th- a third party, was privy to these whole negotiations. He said, what's going to happen? They're going to hire someone else. And they'll say, yeah, sure, come back in five years. And you know the way these things work out. You come in five years, well, this guy has a position already. He's going to be lost forever. So what someone did, this third party did, he hijacked the corpse. He basically said, this is one of the great rabbis of the institution. So, of course, the, the burial service is done in the, in the yeshiva itself. But he said, I'm not going to release the body unless you promise that the day after Shiva, his son takes over. The day after Shiva. If you want to, if you, and it's going to be a tremendous disgrace if you're not going to be able to bury him with a proper honor and leaving the funeral, the funeral memorial service should be done from in the yeshiva. That's, that's universal. When one of the great sages of the yeshiva passes, they have the memorial service, the burial service, the eulogies, etc., done in the yeshiva that he, that he taught in. So they relented. And they said, okay. And then at the young age of, it was like 27 or something like that, I don't know how old it was, but he was very young. Uh, he took over his father's position. And in fact, today, He's like the most, uh, this son, his name is Rabbi Elia Brudny. He's one of the great rabbis of, uh, of the yeshiva world in America. And it worked out well for everyone. He was eminently qualified at the time. He was just young, but now he uh, is already much older. And the story ended up very well for everyone. He's still there, in fact, uh, at the mirror in his father's position. But in fact, now the original yeshiva passed away. And he's one of the shining stars uh, and he is the destination. If people, if people want to go to that yeshiva, it's because of him. I guess it worked out for all parties involved. But this is, again, an example. Rabbi Gamliel, we don't really know much about him. Uh, there's very scant teachings from him in the Talmud. There's one of them, which is a beautiful teaching in the Talmud, that he quotes a verse in Deuteronomy, that God will give you mercy and will be merciful to you. And will increase you. That's what the verse in Deuteronomy chapter 13 says. Comes along Rabbi Gamliel, the son of Rabbi Judah the prince, and says, a beautiful teaching, whoever has mercy 
on others, God will have mercy upon him. And whoever does not have mercy on others, God will not have mercy upon them. That's the that's the one of the few teachings we're told, a very beautiful teaching. But again, he wasn't someone, uh, he was of course a great Torah scholar, but not someone on the level of his father, even his brother, yet he became the Nasi and he executed the the position uh, effectively. And he is the author of our Mishnah. And he tells us, beginning of the Mishnah, beginning is that it's good to marry Torah study together with an occupation, together with Derech Eretz. Why? Because toiling, exerting in both of them will make you forget sin. Now, this is an interesting dilemma, interesting question that we see several times in the, in the Talmud. We know, of course, that there's no greater mitzvah than studying Torah. Yeah, but studying Torah doesn't pay that much, doesn't pay that well. So what, how, what is the proper allocation of Torah study on one hand versus occupation on the other hand? So, of course, someone could say, I'm just having an occupation. Well, then they have no Torah. If someone could say, I'm just doing Torah study, then they have no occupation. So here we're being advised to do a certain blend. Do, do, do both of them. Do Torah study, but also exert yourself toil in matters of trying to make a living. So the core or the, the, the area in the, the Talmud where this debate is, is explicated is in the book of Brachos on page 35b. And what the Talmud says is it quotes two verses. Verse number one is in the second paragraph of the Shema, which says, Ve'asafta diganecha. You should gather your grain. Well, if it says you should gather your grain, obviously you're a farmer. Obviously, because if you weren't a farmer, you wouldn't have grain. So when it says you should gather your grain, obviously it means that you are you're a farmer and you plowed and you planted and you tilled and you waited and you tended to, and now it's time to gather the grains. It's time to gather in the crop. This year there was a yield, and now you have to cut in, cut in your grain. Cut in your grain and harvest it. So obviously it means that you're a farmer. So the Torah is talking to us and saying to us, okay, if you listen to the Almighty, you'll gather in your grain. You're a farmer. That's one verse. The other verse says, you should never depart the book of Torah. Never. Study Torah all the time. Which implies you sign Torah all the time, which means you're not plowing, you're not planting, and you're not toiling, and you're not harvesting. None of that. You're studying Torah all the time. And Tom says, wait a minute. On one hand, we're, we say you're a farmer. On the other hand, we say that, no, you're studying Torah the whole time. Which is it? So that's the debate. And it brings two opinions. And Rabbi Yishmael, one of the Tanoim, he says, very much like the author of our Mishnah, he says, well, you got to do both got to study Torah, but you also can't ignore your family and your livelihood. You also should find a way to create a blend between your needs to make a livelihood and your your Torah study. So study Torah all the time, but don't ignore the fact that you need to make occupation. Find time to make, find time to, to work on that. That's what Rabbi Shemal says. Comes along Rabbi Shemal Bar Yochai, whose yard site we just uh, celebrated on Lad Bomer, and he takes a very extreme position. He says, what's going to be? Someone's going to plow at the time of plowing and plant at the time of planting and harvest at the time of, har- of harvesting and grind the wheat at the time of grinding and winnow it at the time of the wind. When are they ever going to have time to study Torah? Farming is a full-time job. What's going to be with Torah? Rather, his way of solving the problem of these two verses is saying that when the Jewish people are not doing the will of God, well, then they're farmers. 
However, when the Jewish people are doing the will of God, if you just study Torah, and that's the idealized version, then the work will be done by others. Just study Torah, and then God will magically take care of you. You'll have food. Now, Rabbi Shunim himself was someone who went into a cave for 13 years and studied Torah with his son, hiding from the from the Romans, of course, as we know the, the, the Talmud in the book of Shabbos on page 33b tells us. And how did he feed himself? Well, there was a stream of water outside the cave and a carob tree, and that's what he ate and drank for 13 years. That's what it tells us about Rabbi Shimon himself. So he actually practiced what he preached. You study Torah, and God will take care of you. But here he's advising. So there's, there's, there's two statures, or there's two statuses that the Jewish people could have. They could do the will of God, which means study Torah all the time, and then their work will be done by others, or they cannot do the will of God, not study Torah all the time, and then they'll have to do their own work. What he's suggesting, sh- suggesting is that when we accept upon ourselves the will of God entirely, then God upgrades the way he treats us, and he'll take care of us. Don't worry, he'll feed us. Whereas if we don't accept the will of God entirely, then we're on our own. We've got to feed ourselves. That's what he says. And the Talmud concludes that a lot of people tried both options. A lot of people tried like Rabbi Yishmael, which had a more pragmatic, as we would think of it, approach of blending Torah with work, and it worked for them. They were able to have both. However, a lot of people tried, like Rabbi Shimon, they tried to say, I'm just going to study Torah, and God will give me a carob tree and a stream of water and take care of me. And most of them, it didn't work out for them. So, and then finally, the Gemara concludes that one of the great rabbis, in fact, the rabbi whose name appears most frequently, the Talmud Rava, he would tell his students, at least during the heavy season, during the, the month of Tishrei, which is the planting, and the month of Nisan, which is the time of harvesting, I don't want to see you in the yeshiva. I don't want to see you because I want you to be all in on working for two months a year. That way you can study the remaining remaining 10 months a year. Don't, don't show up here because what's going to be? If someone says, oh, I'm going to study then, not make a living, then the whole year you're going to try to fill in the gaps. Whereas if you kind of concentrate your time working during these months, the rest of the time you'll have the peace of mind uh, to study. Which seems to imply that the conclusion of the Talmud is indeed in line with the teaching of our Mishnah, that we should try to find a blend of Torah study and making a livelihood, and that is most likely to be effective, because a lot of people tried, like Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, a lot of people tried to just study Torah and let God tend to their needs, and for most, it didn't work out for them. Now, it's important to stress that the Gemara does not say that it doesn't work out for anyone, that no one tried like Rabbi Shimon and it worked for them. It says that most people tried it like Rabbi Shimon, and for most, it didn't work for them. Which means that the argument is not a theoretical one. They're not arguing on principle. They're arguing on the pragmatic, practical side. Everyone agrees that if someone was really like Rabbi Shimon, who truly trusted in God entirely, and was willing to go into a cave and say, God will take care of me, I'll study Torah, that would work. It's just for most people, they're not quite on that level. And therefore, they're going into the cave and saying, oh gosh, what am I going to do? I'm going to starve to death, probably. And because they have that degree of doubt, therefore, they're not fully accepting the, the will of God, and therefore, they're sort of speak on their, sort of speak on their own, and therefore, it's not going to work out for them because they didn't, they didn't, they weren't quite there. They didn't quite earn the right to say, I'm going to rely on God because they don't fully rely on God. And if they were to be like Rabbi Shimon, then it would work. And therefore, it's more like an advice for most of us. Most of us, uh, at, 
the state that we are, certainly the way, if it was, if this was true 15, 1600 years ago in the times of the Talmud, it's certainly true today. We have to find a way to make a blend between earning a livelihood and studying Torah. Of course, it means that we should try to study Torah as much as we can, but we shouldn't neglect, we shouldn't rely on miracles like Rabbi Shimon and say, oh, there will be a carob tree because we're invariably going to have a niggling doubt about that and we'll probably, it won't work out so well for us. Now, I've seen suggested that Rabbi, Rabbi Judah the Prince, like he created a renaissance of Torah in, uh, in the Jewish world. And he after all gathered all these great scholars to write down the Mishnah. And it seems like after he passed, his son, Rabbi Gamliel, is telling people, you know, he's more like a, a, a pragmatic leader to warn people that this is the next generation. We have the Mishnah done. And we shouldn't have too much or, or there shouldn't be too many people trying to do it all and trying to just study Torah because it's probably not going, not going to work. It's good to have a blend of Torah with with work. Now, some of the commentaries point out that what this means is it means not just that there should be hours for Torah study and hours for work, but there should be a, a blend, which means even when someone's working the field – they're working in the field with their hands and with their feet. What about their mind? What are they thinking about? So it's possible to really do both. Even when someone is working on uh, labor and their hands and their bodies are busy, it doesn't mean that their mind has to be wandering away and thinking about nonsense. They could occupy their time while they are working in their mind to think about matters of Torah. And I saw one of the commentaries writes that unfortunately now it's the exact opposite. Instead of people thinking about Torah when they're working, they're thinking about working when they're studying Torah, uh, which is the exact opposite of what he's suggesting. And it's interesting, there's are, there are some sages that would prefer to find less intellectually demanding forms, uh, lines of work, because that would allow their mind to be free and unoccupied while they work so that they use it to think about matters of, of Torah. Like in today, in today's economy, most people are not work, most people are not uh, laborers that need to just work with their hands. Uh, they most most jobs are require a certain degree of intellectual focus. And therefore today it's obviously much harder when someone is uh working on spreadsheets or whatever that demand a certain degree of intellectual concentration, it's much harder to fulfill this idea of studying Torah together with work or even while working. Uh, but it's certainly something that we see uh, is stressed uh, in this Mishnah by the commentaries that we should try to find a way, even when we're not in front of a book, find a way to have Torah thoughts in our head. Now, the benefit that he outlines is that if you do this, if you tore it together with work, you'll forget to sin. And this is a very interesting uh, use of term. It doesn't say you won't sin or you don't say that it'll be a protection against sin. It says you'll forget to sin, which seems, seems to imply that sin is something you need to remember. Because if you don't remember it, you won't do it. And here, if you're so busy, you're going to forget it. 
Whereas other times when you're not busy, you'll be reminded. And I think that there are many sources in the Talmud and other literature that seem to create this construct or this perspective about sin that it's something which is not fundamental. It's not physiological. It's not something you need. If you need it, I don't need to remind you to eat breakfast because you'll be internally reminded anyhow. It's something that you need. Whereas sin, by definition, is something that you don't need and you only think that you need it because you were reminded of it. And therefore, here we're told, and this, of course, will be applied in many other ways, as we'll see. Here we're told that the only way for the sin to be presented to someone is if, is if you're bored, if you're not occupied. Because obviously it's not a real need. And the Talmud tells us, uh, specifically in the arena where man, specifically man's conflict with the Sahara is most difficult, the Talmud tells us that there is a, an organ within a man that if you feed it, it becomes hungry. If you starve it, it becomes satiated. And what it's telling us is that it doesn't operate the way normal needs operate. If you're hungry and you eat, well, then you're full. You're not hungry anymore. Whereas here, it's the opposite. Feeding will result, instead of satiation, it's just going to add more hunger. And again, this what does this show? This shows that what the Eitzahara is peddling is not real needs, even though they may seem like real needs. Uh, they are faux needs. They're fake needs. They're not logical needs. They're just lustful needs. It makes you think that you really need them, but in reality, it's not a real need. And therefore, I think this really underpins a lot of what the Talmud's suggestions are with respect to combating and resisting and counteracting the Sahara. It's recognizing this fundamental point, that what it's suggesting that we do is not real, it's fake, it makes it feel like it's real. So, for example, the Talmud tells us in the book of Avodazar, Baba Basra, and elsewhere that the methodology of the Sahara is to use the eyes as portals for the heart. What your eyes see, your heart desires, and what your heart desires, your body is going to sin with. And what it's, again, suggesting is that the Sahara is going to try to beachhead in our heart through our eyes. And therefore, says the Talmud, don't see things that may lead you along this progression towards sin. You'll see something and that will create this artificial need that you don't really need but you think you need because of the Sahara, and you'll give in. And in fact, the Talmud actually says if someone is, let's say, has the two options, they could walk. There's two ways to get to the destination. They could walk in front of a brothel or they could walk in front of a place that's not there's no that there is not there's nothing there. And they have two choices, two paths to go. Says so the Talmud, if someone chooses the path that goes by the brothel, then even if they don't actually go and patronize that place, but merely choosing that path that's gonna force them to overcome, that already is a sin. Which means the sin starts when someone allows an opening for the eight sarah within themselves. Now, obviously, what, what that's telling us, again, back to the critical point, that the choice to sin is much earlier than the actual sin. Because 
part of the whole procedure methodology it's right is to allow this feeling inside this lustful desire inside that makes you feel like you really need to sin even though you don't and therefore avoid don't not letting it not letting the ball get rolling nipping and nipping it in the bud curtailing it at its most nascent stages of its progression that is the proper method um, in addition here we're told in the mishnah we're told that you need to f- remember to sin if you're busy whatever you're busy with it could be torah it could be other things but the Yetzirah is not going to be able to elbow his way into your purview and present you with an opportunity to sin. And thus, you're just going to be busy and you're not even going to think about it. And uh, I heard once from someone who said that uh, when you have soldiers on the battlefront and they're actually busy at all times and they have very little time to sleep or to think about anything, that they actually never sin. And of course, there's the uh, there's the old saying that there's no atheist in a foxhole, but I think there's no sinners in a foxhole either, because if they're really busy and they're totally consumed with what they're doing, they don't have time to think about it. They're not going to remember to sin. And finally, there's a great story in the Talmud. I might have mentioned it in a previous uh, talk, but I'll say it again because it's so great. The Talmud says that there was a great rabbi, his name was Rabbi Tzadok. He's one of the legendary rabbis in the first century of the Common Era. Why? Because the Talmud says that he he saw the pending doom of Jewish life in Judea uh, before anyone else did. And he spent 40 years with uh, continual fasting. He would eat only uh, one fig a week or something like that. And he was so emaciated because he was just fasting to try to find a, a merit for the Jewish people that would stave off their destruction or the destruction of large portions of the Jewish nation. The Talmud says that uh, he had this encounter with this Roman noblewoman, and she propositioned him. And he responds that my heart is weak and I don't have stamina. Is there something to eat? Now, obviously, like we know, he was very frail and sickly, and it's not a surprise for him to say that he doesn't have stamina and needs something to eat. So this woman responds, well, there is something to eat, but it's not kosher. So he says, well, what difference does it make? I'm about to do this sin. People will do this sin, eat this food. So she takes the food, the meat, not kosher meat, puts it in the oven to prepare it. And out of the blue... Rabbi Tzadok jumps in the oven. So she's surprised. He says, well, what are you doing? And he tells her, well, someone who behaves like this gets thrown into the fiery furnace. So she relents and she says, you know what? We're not going to do this sin because I didn't realize how opposed you were to this behavior. And the commentators all grapple with this very puzzling teaching in the, in, in the Talmud. The great rabbi is prepositioned by the woman and he says, oh, sure, I, I'm just, I'm hungry. Kosher, non-kosher food, sure, whatever. And then finally he jumps into the furnace. So is he giving in to sin or is he not giving in to sin? What's happening? All the commentators try to figure out what's happening. And one of the Talmudic commentators, the Ben Yehoyada, he writes that this episode is, in fact, teaching us a way to avoid sin. Rabbi Tzadok never actually entertained 
acceding to her seductions. Rather, he was using a delay tactic to avoid and resist the sin. He realized that the Yetzirah is not real. It creates an artificial desire, a need, and it gets man's heart pulsating and it creates lust and allure that seems very irresistible. However, there's a vulnerability in that lust that while it begins with a fever pitch, right away it begins to dissipate. So there's a, there's a time limit on how long it lasts. And therefore he realized all I need to do is to delay, to give myself some time to restore the logical calculations that I can make and that will give me the opening to resist. So he tells her, oh, I'm so frail. Give me some food. And she says, uh, we don't have any kosher food. Ah, sure, what difference does it make? And over time, he's in- empowering his intellect to be able to actually evaluate the opportunity before him. And once he had his wits about him, he was able to say, oh, I'm not interested, even if it means to give it up my life, I don't care, I'll jump in the furnace. And again, we see here that this is the, the Torah's understanding of sin. It's something you need to remember. It's not real. And if it's not real, then the way you respond to it is try to restore the reality. If you restore the reality, you're able to evaluate it uh, much more logically, like we said in the previous mission, you're able to do a cost-benefit analysis of the opportunities, and therefore it's much easier to reject it uh, and to maintain our moral standards. The next teaching of the Mishnah is all Torah does not have with it work will, in the end, uh, it will cease and will bring in its weight sin. And the simple understanding of this is if someone does not have an honest way to make a living, A, they won't have the peace of mind to study Torah, and B, they will invariably sin because they need to feed themselves, to feed their family, and if they don't have an honest way of doing it, they'll find a dishonest way of doing it. The Talmud tells us in the book of Kiddushin that a father is required to teach their son, their children, how to make a living, a craft, a trade, something that they could use to make a living. And says the Talmud, if someone does not teach their son how to make a living, as if you're teaching them thievery. Because you're either teaching them how to make an honest living, or in fact, the omission of teaching them how to make an honest living is teaching them how to make a dishonest living, a living thievery. If, if a parent pays for an education, that is enough to, for that the child can use that to make a living? That would certainly fulfill this requirement. Now, whether or not college prepares people for the tomorrow's economy, that's an open debate. Maybe certain majors uh, are more likely to yield positive economic results than others. Uh, but then again, what do I know? Uh, but uh, I think the data, the data certainly suggests that. So, um, yeah, but I, I think it doesn't have to be college necessarily. If the if the child learns how to be a welder or how to be a plumber or how to be an electrician, things like that, they make a lot of money actually. Uh, or teach him the real estate business, whatever it may be. Uh, as long as the child has an honest way to make a living, that is that is that is the ch- that is the child fulfilling the parent fulfilling the responsibility to prepare the child for life. Uh, and here we're told that if someone just has Torah without any work. Not only will they not be able to make a living in an honest way, 
they will also not be able to have Torah because Torah, when someone doesn't have food to eat, doesn't quite have a great track record. Finally, the Mishnah concludes that all those who work with the public, they should work for the sake of heaven. So this is a little bit not clear what the Mishnah means. If you work with the public, do it for the sake of heaven. Why? Because the merit of their fathers and the righteousness of the fathers stands forever and, and actually helps them. What this is telling us is, if you are someone who is a public uh, servant for the Jewish people, and you work, whatever it may be, it could be in any area of, of, of need, of public need for the community. You could be a politician, or you could be a lobbyist, or you could be someone who is trying to uh, help the poor, or help uh, the at-risk youth, or teach Torah to the masses, whatever it may be. If you're a public servant for the Jewish nation, great. And hopefully you'll see fantastic results from your efforts. However, you should know that it's not you who are helping the Jewish people. It's their forefathers, Abram, Isaac, and Jacob. These are the pillars of the Jewish nation, and their merit lasts forever, and the results really are attributed to them. However, if you act for the sake of heaven, if you say, I'm really doing it because I want to help others, not because I want to have glory or because I want to have success or I want to be appreciated or I want to become rich uh, on the back end, you're doing it for the sake of heaven. You do it for the right reasons. Then God will say, so to speak, I'm going to consider it as if you actually brought about those results, even though you didn't because they have the, Jew- you know, the Jewish forbearers. The backing that we have from Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, our great predecessors amongst the other great Jewish leaders, they are the real merit leading to the result. However, if you do it for the sake of heaven, you do it with the right intentions, then it's as if you actually brought about those results and you get the merit of all those good things that you facilitated. Uh, now, the, the Rambam adds another wrinkle to this. How is this connected to the previous teachings. So the Ramam writes that if someone is unable to do a mitzvah due to serving the public, then if they serve the public for the sake of heaven, the Almighty will consider it as if they fulfill that mitzvah. So again, we see this idea of blending work with, 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 with mitzvah. And specifically, we're told by the Rambam, suppose someone, I did an easy example, someone is a member of the Hatzalah. In every large Jewish community, this is what's called Hatzalah. Hatzalah means salvation. But specifically, it means uh, first responders, EMTs and the like, that whenever there's an emergency, they run to try to help. So you'll see, you go to any shul in Brooklyn, you'll see some people with beepers or uh, walkie-talkies or whatever, and then they sometimes on Shabbos, no one carries phones on Shabbos, but they carry phones, physicians and the like. And then in instance, in an instant, they get a call, they rush to the site and try to help and provide first aid and whatever to people in need. I know when we were in Israel, uh, there was an episode we had to call the, uh, the Hatzalah. So what you do is you call the ambulance, like the police or the people hired by the state. And there's also the volunteers. And the volunteers are always there first. So we had to call um, – uh, my son was three years old, three months old, and we had uh, seemingly a, a, a medical emergency. It was six in the morning or something like that, and we called. And like a minute later, 
one of the neighbors in, in the neighborhood was there. And like 20 minutes later, the ambulance came. And by that time, we was already checked out. We actually called the ambulance and canceled it. And we saved ourselves a 300 shekel that would have costed us. But that's quite common. And whenever a Jewish – in a big Jewish community, there's always what's called the Atzala. Groups of volunteers who are EMTs and physicians that are going to provide first aid to people in need. So someone's praying and their beeper starts ringing or their phone goes off and they have to run out and have to leave the prayer. Of course, they need to do it. What about the mitzvah? Do they get the mitzvah of prayer? Says the Rambam, that's how you understand this Mishnah. If you're helping the public for the sake of heaven, then God will consider as if you fulfilled that mitzvah that you lost in response uh, to the need that you came to fulfill. Uh, alternatively, we saw in the beginning part of the Mishnah, we saw that someone should not neglect work, do Torah with work, Torah without work is terrible. Here we see a case where maybe it might be permissible, might be acceptable to refrain from work because you're helping the public. If you benefit the public, then that will be an okay instance to refrain from work. So again, the bottom line of this Mishnah is that Rabbi Gamliel is encouraging us to not just study Torah, to try to study Torah as much as we can, of course, but to also have work alongside it. And that way, both the Torah and the work will be successful and will also be able to avoid sin. We're going to have everything. Whereas if someone tries to do just Torah and not do any work, not do any labor, they might have nothing. They won't have any work, they won't have any living, and they won't have any Torah either because that's not the conditions in which Torah can thrive. And finally, if we are public servants, we should try to do as much as we can for the sake of heaven. I want to quickly go through the third Mishnah where he would say to be very skeptical, very wary about rulers, which is basically to be skeptical of politicians because they're in it for themselves and not for you. They may seem to be very much uh, very friendly to you, but that's because they want something from you. And it's amazing how, I guess, politicians haven't really changed in 2,000 years, uh, that they're in it for themselves and they, if, if they think you could help them by giving them a donation or helping advance the political agenda, then whatever, like, the, you're the best friend. However, if uh, you kind of uh, you fall in hard times, it's likely that they're not your friends anymore and you're on your own. And I think it does connect. Uh, one of the commentaries tells us here, the, the Chassid the Yaivetz tells us that it does connect to the previous teaching because people who are public servants, very frequently they have to go visit the king or visit the various officers, ministers, or, or the like. And it's telling you is that, okay, you're going to go negotiate with the governor on behalf of the, of the people that you're helping. And you're thinking, wow, this governor is amazing. Like, wow, he really did this for the, Jew, for the Jewish people or for my constituents or the like. But in reality, he's only acting because he thinks he can get his votes or whatever. You should know that the real result comes from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob from the merit of the forefathers. Alternatively, he says, don't think – that you could really trust these people, these politicians, and say, oh, I'm going to ingratiate myself and make sure they really like me and willing to compromise on my beliefs and my morals and my ideals and my values and my priorities because they're going to help me and they'll be be my uh, my bro, my wingman forever. You should know that 
it's not worth for you to compromise on your on your beliefs and your ideals and your morals and your values and priorities uh, for a relationship with these politicians because their allegiances are very much uh, for the taking. Uh, and therefore, don't renege upon your beliefs in order to uh, just ingratiate yourself with the teens. And the politicians are people that you may think that this is worthwhile. It's, it's worth to exchange that because, after all, they have power. But no, their 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 power and their allegiances are very much um, dependent upon the circumstances. And I think it's uh, good advice then, good advice today. It's better for us to rely on God than to rely on politicians. And certainly the efforts that we can, we should try to, to, to lobby, but we should all be done with the sake of heaven with recognition that the Jewish people have the eternal merits of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all of our great predecessors that are really helping us in ensuring our continuity and our stability and our security and our prosperity today, not the politicians that are here today and gone tomorrow.